Welcome to the 1515, a 15-minute podcast brought to you by the regulatory legal experts at the Maples Group. Here, you will learn more about the latest developments in the regulatory laws of the Cayman Islands on the 15th day of every month. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the third episode of our 1515 podcast. I'm Chris Capewell, and I'm a partner and head of the regulatory and financial services team here at Maples in Corda. Joining me today is regulatory associate here in Cayman, Nikki Wood. Uh, we also have Daniel Moore, who's an associate in our Hong Kong office. In this May edition of the podcast, we are going to cover the more material and regulatory updates since our last podcast in April. We'll track through some FATF updates. We'll then look at the rules and statement of guidance on internal controls and corporate governance. We'll then look at some of the new bills that have recently come through. And then finally, we'll discuss some data protection developments. We did have a public holiday here in the Cayman Islands, so apologies for this being late, but it is what it is, so we'll crack on. Please do note that the contents of this podcast do not constitute our legal advice and should be taken as a general update only. Before we do get going, I did want to cover the usual light housekeeping matters. If you are listening from a podcast app, You'll find any of the resource documents and speaker information in the description. And if you've clicked on the media link sent to you via email, you can find this information in the notes section. Last but not least, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Okay, um, let's get started. Nikki, Dan, I'll go initially. Just one of the points that I did want to touch on, I'll be fairly quick here because I think, Nikki, you've got the, the focus of the podcast, was on FATF. There, there are a couple of points I just wanted to note to the listeners. The first one is that on the 19th of April, the Criminal Division of the Grand Court of the Cayman Islands did hand down a sentencing decision in Canova, Watson and Bruce Blake case. As a reminder, the defendants in that original decision were convicted after a trial by jury on the 28th of October last year and they were actually both awaiting sentencing in relation to various offences including false accounting contrary to section 255 of the penal code, secret commission contrary to section 21 of the anti-corruption act and money laundering contrary to section 134 of the proceeds of crime act. The grand court did sentence both individuals to a term of imprisonment. Canover was sentenced to eight years in prison a total of which two years represented money laundering offense and Blake was sentenced to a two-year prison term for false accounting. That's important um, from our prior discussions that we've had here where one of the outstanding items relating to the FATF grey list was sentencing and prosecution of AML offences. Did also want to mention that I think it was a few days ago now, earlier this month, the Ministry of Financial Services and Commerce did issue a press release noting that the Minister Andre Ebanks and the Attorney General, Mr. Samuel Bolgium, were to lead an overseas delegation to Mexico to discuss Cayman Islands' progress on the FATF assessment with the America's Joint Group, which represents a subgroup of the FATF Cooperation Review Group. The press release confirmed that the joint group will report its findings from the review process to the FATF for the decision ultimately by the FATF in its plenary in June. At the end of the June plenary, the FATF will then make a public statement in the normal course, setting out the status of the jurisdictions on its monitoring list, whether jurisdictions are to remain, to be removed, etc. 
Hopefully, if the Cayman Islands is to be removed, it would normally happen at the following plenary, which in this case is expected to be October later of this year. So very much do watch this space. Um, there's quite a bit happening behind the scenes relating to FATF. Hopefully, it's all good progress and fingers crossed. So, Nick, you have set the scene in terms of FATF. One of the more material points, I guess, for this podcast that we were hoping that you could focus on, I know that you recently spoke at an industry event on it, were the rules and statement of guidance on internal controls and corporate governance. So are you able to track the listeners through some of the key points there, please? Yes, thanks, Chris. So on the 14th of April 2023, CIMA published new and updated regulatory measures in the Cayman Islands Gazette. So these were the new rule and statement of guidance on internal controls for regulated entities, the revised rule on corporate governance for regulated entities, which was previously a statement of guidance, and the new revised statement of guidance on corporate governance for mutual funds and private funds. So there are other revisions to statements of guidance and rules which are minor and have been updated, which consist of the statement of guidance on outsourcing for regulated entities, rule and statement of guidance on cybersecurity for regulated entities, and the statement of guidance for nature accessibility and retention of records. The rule and statement of guidance on internal controls and the rule on corporate governance comes into effect six months after publication, so the 14th of October 2023. And technically, the other updated rules and statements of guidance are in effect from the date of publication. So just as a brief reminder, a rule is generally a similar directive creating a regulatory obligation on an entity, a breach of which could lead to a fine or a regulatory action. And a statement of guidance is a recommendation to assist with compliance with that law and regulation. However, if there is a a breach of a statement of guidance or a rule during an inspection, both matters would appear as a remediation point in the inspection report. Enforcement generally is per the enforcement manual or CMS administrative fines regime. So just to touch on the rule and statement of guidance on internal controls. So those with an internal audit or risk and control background would generally be familiar with the contents of these internal controls. So they derive generally from the Committee of Sponsoring Organizations, the Treasury Commission or the COSO framework. The rule and statement of guidance apply to all regulated entities. So that means that licensees and registrants are caught. But CIMA does recognize that the application remain very subject to the structure nature, size, complexity, and risk profile of the entity. And just as a note, by delegating activities to another service provider, to an outsourced service provider, that does still mean that the statement of guidance and rule and internal controls applies and the regulated entity remains accountable for those outsourced service activities. The rule and statement of guidance is split into two parts. Primarily, the the five key components of internal controls, and this is where the the causal framework comes into play. So it's looking at the control environment, the risk identification and assessment, the control activities and segregation of duties, information and communication, monitoring activities and correcting deficiencies. The second part is really the sector-specific guidance, which is currently in place for fiduciary services and securities investment business, so investment managers or investment advisors. And just to go quickly through some of those points of the, the five key components, the control environment. If an entity is inspected, then CMA really wants to look at the audit trail and the documentary evidence to be able to show that the entity has considered the control environment and that it's adequate and effective. So, for example, the governing body must approve 
the business strategies and significant policies of the entity and understand and document material risks and then demonstrate that it is monitoring those risks through an internal control system and exercising oversight of outsourced service providers and of those internal controls. The culture of the entity um, also comes into play, so they must, the entity must demonstrate that it is operating with integrity and ethical values, that it has considered the compensation scheme, that the entity and those working for it aren't over-dependent on short-term performance, that there's an effective segregation of duties and staff fulfilling control functions have appropriate skill, knowledge and experience in order to undertake that role. So moving on to the risk identification and assessment, very much the entity must document and understand its risk-related objectives and demonstrate how it is effectively managing that risk. From the control activities and segregation of duties perspective, generally we'd be looking at this being documented through policies, which is the overarching principles of the organisation, and then executed in the procedures, which is really a step-by-step guide as to how the entity and persons undertaking activities for the entity should be doing something. The internal control environment should really be set out throughout the organization, including the tone from the top, from the governing body undertaking reviews of control activities, down to checking compliance with exposure limits and addressing non-compliance, looking at approvals and authorization and verifications and reconciliations. Information and communication is important. So the board of directors or governing body reviewing timely and accurate management information, having that communication channel open, and importantly, as we mentioned earlier, being able to document and evidence that that's happening. So communications in, in team meetings, which aren't being documented, obviously that's not going to be evidence in terms of should an entity become inspected. And then looking at data systems, they should be secure, monitored, and the business continuity plan or disaster recovery plan of the organization should be documented and tested. Finally, on the internal controls, monitoring activities should be adequately documented and effectively monitored. And some of that effectiveness then looks at the internal audit of internal controls, which should be carried out periodically using a risk-based approach. Sorry. Finally... Sorry, sorry, Nikki, just before you carry on, because there's a huge amount of information. So I think we have it on the slides, the extent that the listeners can get access to them from the link. So what we're saying is that the internal controls have five components as set out in the rule. You mentioned the control environment, the risk identification and assessment, the control activities, the information and communication. And then what was the last one that you were just talking about? The monitoring, is that right? Monitoring. Yeah. Okay. So monitoring of the activities and then correcting any deficiencies identified. Okay. Sorry. I just wanted to be clear on that because it's a, a lot of information. So sorry, Nikki, go on, carry on. Yeah. The final one, monitoring activities and then correcting deficiencies. When the management body is reviewing information and seeing deficiencies, they should be remediating those in a timely manner. So that's it on the internal controls. Now moving on to the new rule and revised statement of guidance on corporate governance. So this rule applies to all regulated entities. Um, There is a statement of guidance for regulated mutual funds, which has been revised and includes private funds, um, which is new, which we'll touch on later. But this rule and statement of guidance is really building on the existing corporate governance statement of guidance for regulated entities, which has been in effect from February 2016 
and then building on the existing statement of guidance, which was in place for regulated mutual funds from December 2013. And I don't think any of this is particularly new. As Seema says, they will apply the rule on corporate governance um, commensurate with the nature, complexity, size, uh, nature of business, structure, risk profile of the entity. And they document what the corporate governance framework must consist of. So setting objectives and strategy, collective duties, individual duties of directors, delegation of responsibilities, conflicts of interest, risk management, transparency of communications and relations with the Cayman Islands Monetary Authority. The documentary requirements, as I mentioned, I don't think anything is particularly new here. Having a conflicts of interest policy, succession plan, nomination procedures, documenting responsibilities of subcommittees. We have seen during previous inspections of other entities where Seema would ask, for example, for corporate governance policy to be able to document that all of these requirements were actually being uh, undertaken. I suppose the new aspects in terms of the corporate governance rule is the obligation to ensure that the regulator is notified by email within 10 days of any substantive or material issues, as entities are already doing, complying with any requests for information from the Cayman Islands Monetary Authority and documenting at least once a year that the governing body has convened and reviewed the strategic objectives and policies of the entity, undertaken a self-assessment, reviewed the risk assessment and internal controls and remuneration policy. In terms of delegation, ensuring that the entity is maintaining oversight of those delegates. And I suppose perhaps new is having the financial reporting process established and documented with the governing body establishing and overseeing an audit committee or equivalent, which would be responsible for for the financial reporting process. So moving on to the revised statement of guidance on corporate governance for mutual funds and private funds. So this is the change where we're adding regulated private funds to the application of the existing statement of guidance for mutual funds, regulated mutual funds. So the changes in this act, it's adding the definition of operator in the place of the former governing body. It is documenting the obligations of the governing body that it has ultimate responsibility for oversight on business and documenting that the governing body should maintain the oversight of the service providers for maintaining and complying with law regulations and their duties in terms of their services. The board as well as the governing body should meet at least annually and then have a diversity of skills, backgrounds and experience. Drawing in from the fiduciary obligations, probably that the board or governing body should be acting with due skill, uh, care and diligence. They must be independent and act in the best interests of the fund and make relevant inquiries on matters of concern, communicating with investors where necessary and have capacity to perform functions in a responsible and effective manner. So just as a recap, the operators are responsible for ensuring that the fund documents comply with legal and regulatory obligations, the investment strategy and conflict of interest policy are in the offering or marketing documents and that the marketing and offering documents describe the equity interests adequately for investors to make an informed decision. So some of the other duties which are now documented in the statement of guidance for the private funds in particular, 
monitoring the investment management performance in accordance with fund documentation, approving the fund's financial position and audited statement, regularly monitoring the NAV policy and calculations and oversight of fund risk management, and maintaining full, clear and accurate records of meetings, again, notifying SEMA of any material or adverse matters affecting the financial position or non-compliance with law. Great. Thanks, Nikki. Obviously, a lot of information for us and the listeners to digest there. We do set out a good chunk of it on the slides. Once the listeners, you can get access to those. The key points for me, I guess, is that SEMA do make it clear that the rules, the, the guidance have application depending on the, the sort of size, complexity, nature of business, risk profile operations. So it isn't a, a one size fits all. The application of these measures will vary depending on the structure of the organization. Private funds Funds are now going to be coming into play. Obviously, the way that uh, a lot of the private funds are set up is is quite different to, for example, um, hedge funds. So it will be interesting to see how that evolves. Maples separately have issued a, a client alert, which I think should be um, going out now, um, today or so. Um, we've also got a separate working group. We're working through these um, policies and the rules. So we will be in contact with the clients. If you do have any immediate questions, obviously feel free to reach out to your usual Maples and Calder um, attorney or any of us on this podcast. So Dan, why don't we just change tack now? And I think you were going to track us through some of the, the new bills that have come through. Sure. Uh, thanks, Chris and Nikki. Yep, there's been a number of amendment bills that were passed at the last meeting of Cayman Parliament, which took place on 26th to 28th of April 2023. The measures comprise a total of seven bills across various industry sectors, including companies management, directors registration and licensing, insurance, securities investment business and virtual assets. The purpose of all of these amendment bills is to expand out SEMA's power to levy administrative fines, not only to companies, but now also partnerships of all kinds, their partners, unincorporated associations, and persons concerned in their management and control. The amendments also allow SEMA to share with other overseas regulatory authorities non-public information about criminal conduct that SEMA may uncover during the course of carrying out its functions of financial supervision, regulation, and compliance. So a reminder for businesses operating through Cayman Partnerships in particular, just to be aware of this potential exposure and to continue to maintain compliance. And to round out our regulatory update today, I'd like to talk about a recent Cayman data protection decision. This was issued by the Ombudsman on 27th of April, 2023, and it relates back to a complaint made by an individual against a local real estate agent in Cayman. The background was that the agent's email account had been compromised, which ultimately led to the complainant's deposit monies being sent to fraudsters. Now, relevantly, the agent as data controller did not notify the regulator of the breach until after the complaint had been made by the person concerned. A number of issues arose for determination by the ombudsman, whether there were appropriate technical and organizational measures in place, whether there was compliance with the notification requirements under the Data Protection Act, and whether the personal data of the affected individual was being processed fairly. And these all tie into various principles that are set out in the Cayman Data Protection Act. The findings of the ombudsman where that personal data was not being processed in a manner that ensured its protection against unauthorized access. It was found that the technical measures, such as they were, by the agent had significant vulnerabilities. There were, in fact, no policies in place with respect to data handling. Uh, the Data Protection Act requirement to notify breach was not followed. 
and no privacy notice was issued as required under the Data Protection Act, which would have informed the client of the purpose for which their data was being processed. So this resulted in an enforcement order being issued, requiring the business concern to, within 30 days, migrate to a business email solution that supports multi-factor authentication and industry standard email filtering. The business was also ordered to engage an IT service provider and to hold cybersecurity and undertake data protection awareness training, at least annually. So a reminder to businesses established uh, or processing personal data in Cayman to ensure the importance of compliance with the data protection regime. Thanks, Dan. One other point I did just want to mention was in relation to the beneficial ownership transparency bill that closed for consultation on 25th of April or so, I think it was. So it'll be interesting to see where that evolves to a couple of days after the beneficial ownership consultation closed. Ministry did issue a second round consultation in relation to mandatory disclosure rules for CRS avoidance arrangements and opaque offshore structures. So as well as the draft regulations as well. So we're currently looking through that from a prior podcast. I think listeners will recall that the purpose of the mandatory disclosure rules is to provide tax administration with information on CRS avoidance arrangements and opaque offshore structures, including users of those arrangements and structures and those that are involved with their supply. So let's see how that one evolves. Uh, I think um, comments relating to the mandatory disclosure rule consultation are due in several days' time. I think it's 25th of May, 2023. So if you do have any feedback on that consultation, um, push them through your industry association. Um, that is it for today's podcast. Thank you very much, Nikki and Dan in particular. I know it's very late with you um, over in Asia now. And thank you to our listeners for listening and also subscribing. Take care and we will be back again next month.